This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, it's great to have your company today for the Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff. Now, coming up, I'll have some more details from the government on how B border crossings will proceed as the states begin to open up their borders to Varroa mite-free sections of New South Wales. It's uh, not fully worked out yet for South Australia, but I've got some more information for you. And could electric tractors help with productivity? They can't just put a bigger machine in that space. So we feel a battery electric solution will work really well in terms of delivering um, greater efficiencies and the technology uh, to support productivity um, without having to compromise on size. I'll have more on that soon, electric tractors and hydrogen tractors and autonomous tractors. There's a lot of uh, technology going into tractors these days, so I'll have a little bit more on that soon. But first up today, a prime parcel of cropping land on the York Peninsula has sold for a record price of $9.6 million. The 255-hectare property 10 kilometres from Maitland attracted a healthy bidding crowd and is believed to have set a new benchmark. That uh, works out at $37,600 a hectare. Whoa. Auctioneer James Wardle says the sale might see farmers heading back to the bank to readjust what their property is worth. Uh, we had about 120 or 130 in attendance, um, six registered buyers on the day. Uh, we ended up having uh, three active bidders during the auction. As with most auctions, things started off quite slowly. So, yeah, we called for an opening bidder offer and, and yeah, didn't get anyone to start us away. So we started the bidding at, at $8 million, um, and took $200,000 rises from there to get uh, to get up to the $9.6 million, um, is, is is where it ended up. Um, with a bit of um, contested bidding along the way. As you just said, it, it reached $9.6 million, which roughly works out to be over $15,000 per acre. Is that a record price for land of this size? Yeah, look, we've certainly done a bit of looking around and, and can't find any sales, whether it be off market or on market, that have yeah, achieved that $15,000 an arable acre mark. So, yeah, we're very pleased with the result. What makes this property such a prime piece of cropping land? Yeah, look, it's a very highly, tightly held yeah, pocket, I should say, um, in the York Valley there. And, and look, the reasons it is so tightly held is is due to its yeah, high productivity. Um, it is a very renowned cropping region uh, within the state for producing some of the some of the best crops. Um, due due to the soil type, I mean, you've got that sandy loam soil coupled with yeah, 500 millimetre rainfall average, annual rainfall average, yeah, it does produce the goods more often than not. So, Do we know why it was sold? Uh, so, yeah, so um, a bit of succession planning, really. Um, the, the current vendors um, had been leasing it for a period um, and, and, yeah, obviously made the decision, yeah, that they were going to, yeah, consolidate, offload um, this parcel of land. So there were 630 acres in this parcel, 
um, and yeah, leasing out the remaining yeah, home parcel, which is about 380 acres on the home parcel, which they're going to continue to lease out and live on the live on the home block. And how does this sale compare with other properties that you've sold in the mid north? Um, yeah, look, it's certainly up there on a rate per acre. Um, we did quite a big auction um, in Jamestown um, sort of late last year, where that was 1,700 acres, um, similar sort of rainfall country up in the hills there, and that made sort of just north of 12 million and and that sort of yeah around that seven seven thousand dollars an acre so yeah it's sort of uh, yeah well well and truly up and over that i mean yeah, if you're looking at historic sales for the york peninsula and um, there have been quite a few sort of at, at 12 and thirteen thousand dollars an acre but again yeah we're we've sort of yeah cracked that 15 which yeah we're very pleased with so what's your prediction is this going to be a bit of a, a trend now um, look, yeah, once rural land gets there, it doesn't, yeah, doesn't often sort of, yeah, go back in value. So certainly for that York Valley region, I think it's set a bit of a, bit of a benchmark there now. So um, I think anyone looking to sell will be looking for for similar sort of money or better, um, depending on how their land compares to this block. So I certainly think, yeah, we've sort of set set a bar now. But depending on what goes on with the with the market, yeah, everyone else will want to see, which is only natural. Can you tell us a little bit about the buyers? They're two local farming families. Uh, do you know their plans for the property? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it'd be looking to build economies of scale, uh, both local yeah, farming families, um, as you said. So, yeah, looking to yeah, build on, on what they've currently got there um, to, yeah, I guess, create that economies of scale. They've got the fixed um, costs there. So, yeah, having a, a bit more a bit more land to invest in and work in um, is obviously the plan. So, out of the three active bidders, they're all sort of looking for yeah, farm build-up parcels. Um, all, all local sort of farming families within the area. Um, so, yeah, it's good to see yeah, a few of those locals expanding and, and, and buying a bit more land in the area. What do the surrounding neighbours think? Um, well, some of them were yeah, the buyers in the end. So, yeah, yeah one of, at least one of the buyers sort of named the block. But, oh, look, yeah, the, the talk after the auction was yeah, obviously very pleased with the results. I think a few of them would be going to their banks and sort of yeah, readjusting yeah, what their property's worth, that's for sure. Yeah, it's certainly a very strong price. The James Wardle, Director of Wardle & Co. Real Estate, speaking with Dimitria Panagiotaris. Now, moving to bees now, and states have started opening up their borders to allow bees and bee equipment to move across between the states into the blue varroa mite free zones in New South Wales. Victoria's already released its permit plan, but South Australia's still working on it. Purs's General Manager of Plant and Food Standards, Ross Meffin, can explain how South Australia is approaching it. Good afternoon. Hi, Cassie. Thanks for having me. So what does this declaration that uh, the blue zone of New South Wales is considered varroa mite free, what's that going to mean for movement into South Australia? Since varroa was de- detected in, in New South Wales uh, last year, there's been a, a hold on uh, all movements of, of bees and uh, beekeeping equipment out of New South Wales while that response has been underway. That's been absolutely necessary in terms of uh, the the eradication response and making sure that we can, uh, as a nation, keep Varroa contained. But obviously it's had uh, negative impacts on on those beekeepers that have, uh, as part of their livelihood, needed to move in between states. So this means that we'll be able to move back to something much more like business as usual for, for those beekeepers and it will mean that um, they'll be able to move under a permit system uh, into South Australia uh, once uh, that's up and running. 
So how will the permit system work? So there's a, a little bit of detail to, to work through there. We're, we're still working through the finer details, but uh, essentially when someone needs to, to move their hives uh, out of New South Wales, they need to contact PERSA, um, apply for the permit, and uh, the permit should be processed uh, relatively quickly. We do ask that we, we get uh, uh, a little bit of, of lead time, up to five working days, to, to issue the permit and, and make sure that all of the information has been supplied, that uh, the, the people meet the conditions, uh, and then they'll be able to move uh, into South Australia. When do you think these permits are going to come into effect? We're working uh, to get that done as soon as possible. I think we're a, a little way off. We will have some uh, small legislative changes that uh, need to be uh, made to allow the permit system to operate. And uh, we're just looking to fine-tune uh, some of the details as well. It's really important to make life uh, as easy as possible for those beekeepers that we try to be as harmonised as, as possible with, uh, with the other states. Uh, so we're looking very carefully at what's already in place for movements within that zone in uh, New South Wales as well as uh, the, the permit system that Victoria has uh, recently announced so that we can try to make sure that we work as seamlessly with that as, as possible. Most of New South Wales is under the blue zone, but there are red and purple zones, for example. How is this going to work with them? So this mean, doesn't mean uh, any change for the, the red and purple zones. So the, the red zone is, is uh, around where uh, positive cases of varroa have been detected and the purple zone is a, a surveillance zone uh, that is essentially a, a buffer uh, to make sure that there's no um, likelihood of, of any um, leakage uh, and that we can keep uh, varroa contained to those red zones. Uh, so while the eradication uh, continues in New South Wales, uh, there won't be any changes uh, in terms of movements uh, out of those in, into South Australia. And have you seen growth in the number of registrations of beekeepers? Because I think the um, Apiary Alliance believed that it was possible that 20 to 30% of South Australian beekeepers were unregistered. Look, I wouldn't have any figures on that uh, on hand. Um, we certainly um, work hard to make sure that, that all beekeepers are um, aware of their obligation to be registered. Uh, it's an obligation for anyone uh, with a hive to, to be registered uh, and certainly it's very important for uh, the, the industry and biosecurity as we've seen in, in cases like this that um, everyone is registered so that we can reach out to those people, provide them with the information and the tools that they need to, to operate in a, a biosecure manner. Has there been much take-up of the Varroa sampling kits that were launched in November? Uh, we've had uh, reasonably good uh, uptake of those. Uh, how many? I, I couldn't tell you off, off the top of my head how many we've, we've had. But uh, but there has been interest? Absolutely. We've had uh, good good uptake, uh, people sending in their samples, uh, but we would encourage uh, industry to continue to send in uh, samples. We need to continue to have strong surveillance so that we have um, an early warning detection uh, system in place uh, in the unlikely event that, that uh, Varroa uh, isn't uh, contained uh, in the future to those, those red zones. 
and also to continue to provide confidence uh, to the rest of the nation that varroa um, remains out of South Australia. Do you think there's been enough sampling to give the industry confidence that there isn't varroa in South Australia? Absolutely. Uh, so I, I think we can have a, a very high confidence that uh, varroa is, is absent from South Australia based uh, not only on the sampling but on the, the strong movement uh, conditions that we've had in place since the uh, detection in New South Wales occurred uh, as well as our uh, historical uh, freedom from varroa and uh, look, that's uh, recognised by uh, the other states and territories in, in terms of uh, their uh, acceptance of, of uh, freedom in South Australia and, and the um, movement uh, arrangements that we have in place with Victoria, for example. Hopefully um, it stays that way, that uh, Varroa never makes it to South Australia or indeed uh, the rest of Australia. Hopefully New South Wales can get on top of it as well very quickly. Thank you so much for that update and your time today. Thanks, Kathy. Perth's General Manager of Plant and Food Standards, Ross Meffin, speaking there. And as we know more details, I will bring them to you. It is 17 minutes past 12. She goes back, she clips it through mid-wicket. Today, ABC Sports Summer of Cricket continues. This is a T20 you won't want to miss. Catch all the action of the Women's T20 International between Australia and Pakistan. Every ball, every catch, every wicket and every big kid. Australia v Pakistan, live from Sydney. She jumps up in the air. On ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and live on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. This is the Country Hour Ag Machinery Company, John Deere, is planning to launch electric tractors in Australia in just three years. They'll start with smaller units that are more suitable for the hort sector and some will actually be driverless as well. There's so much technology going into tractors at the moment. All sorts of different tractors are, are being worked on. David Corton spoke about the rollout with the company's Australia and New Zealand production system manager, Steph Jezikoski. So in June last year, we announced um, our electrification strategy as part of our 2026 LEAF ambitions. And under that strategy, um, we announced that we plan to deliver an electric option in each of our turf and compact utility tractor portfolios, um, as well as an autonomous battery electric powered ag tractor by 2026. So it's not just one model. There'll be, there'll be several, will there? Uh, yes, so the battery electric ag tractor is um, currently the project I'm most involved with, but our intention is to offer at least one model across our turf and compact utility portfolio. So, so, so be utility... so it's the kind of thing that will be used on a turf farm? Yeah, correct. Um, so typically we see our compact tractors used across a range of applications, um, acreage, lifestyle properties, as well as hoard and turf applications. And what would it be doing? Cutting grass or would there be other applications? Uh, it could be a range of applications, anything from spraying to mowing um, and other maintenance tasks. Obviously, horticulture customers, when we're talking about row width and limitations, they're, um, they're limited in terms of how they can get those productivity gains. They can't just put a bigger machine in that space. So we feel a battery electric solution will work really well in terms of delivering um, greater efficiencies and the technology uh, to support productivity um, without having to compromise on size. Will they look different? Uh, yes, they will look somewhat different, but not too different to what you know today. What would the difference be? 
Um, I think you will notice just difference in that machine form. Obviously, we won't have a traditional diesel engine in these ones. So um, you can expect just some design changes there. Smaller? Um, effectively, yes, we'll be able to make them. And if we circle back to the application they're intended for, it's horticulture, right? So making sure that they can fit within rows is really important to us. So you can anticipate um, them being slightly more narrow and a little bit smaller. For those people who are thinking tractors in agriculture, big machines, broad acre type stuff, harvesting crops, when when is that when are you likely to see an electric monster come coming out? Look, I think when we go into those higher horsepower requirements, um, battery electric does have its limitations. So I think, you know, we've got a real opportunity when we're looking at horticulture, you know, any application between that 90 and 130 horsepower range to have a fully battery electric solution. When we start to go into those higher horsepower ranges, you know, I think the opportunity there still is around the diesel technology as well as other more sustainable options um, like biofuels and um, hybrid options. But these, there is, I mean, this question about power and electric machines in in the car industry we're seeing that sometimes uh, and even trucks uh, janice are, are, are converting diesel trucks to electric and saying that they'd be some of the most powerful trucks in australia so what are you seeing in terms of the power of of those smaller tractors that you're about to put out yeah what we expect from battery electric is a more efficient um technology and efficiencies in terms of i guess the power to the ground so um from an application and ability to perform, we have no concerns from that perspective. Right. And, uh, of course, the big issue for farmers is charging batteries. What do you have to change on farm to be able to run an electric tractor? Yeah, I think that's a really relevant question. When we announced the strategy last year, I spoke around the importance of the entire infrastructure and ecosystem that we would be looking to deliver. And that's something we're really mindful of. We can't just put a battery electric tractor on farm and wish our customers all the best. Um, so really the way we're approaching it is through open communication and collaboration with utility providers and partners. Um, and we see that as being critical to the success. So while I can't specifically share what will exactly be needed, I guess I just wanna reassure you know, those who are interested in this technology that we're working with those utility providers and partners to really understand what we need to deliver to make sure that this is feasible for our customers. And people say that electric equipment is much easier or cheaper to service and maintain. But if you're jumping on board with an electric vehicle and, you know, all the usual service options aren't available to you because they're new, how is that? How do you think that's going to be for, for early adopters? What are you thinking about servicing and maintenance? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess with um, battery electric technology, what you can expect to see is not only the machine being simpler, it's also down to the components as well. So we absolutely anticipate less maintenance and servicing um, and parts required to keep the machines running. Um, in terms of, I guess, the aftermarket support and service for our customers, this is something we're already proactively working um, to upskill and address with our dealer network to make sure that they're well prepared to service and support these machines for our customers. Steph Jezikowski from John Deere speaking with David Corton there. And the rollout uh, will start with a select group of farmers initially, and it's going to happen at the same time as in the US. And it does seem the cost of these electric tractors is going to be higher than conventional tractors, as it seems uh, electric cars are as well. But the company does expect prices will come down uh, 
as with the, I know, over the cost of life cycle of machines, they come lower as you count for lower running and repair costs. So it'll be interesting to see all this technology, how uh, that's going to play out in the world of tractors. So we'll keep across that on the Country Hour. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now, though, to find out what is happening weather-wise. We're joined by Senior Forecaster Jenny Horvath. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So she was a bit wild yesterday afternoon in some parts of the state. Yeah, that's right. So we had that surface trough move across the the southeast of the state. And we also, that was backed up by an upper level feature as well. So that combination did produce a couple of severe thunderstorms that moved over sort of the Mount Lofty Ranges and the the Murray Lands there. So we saw um, about 30 millimetres fall at Lobethal in about, um, 30 millimetres in about 30 minutes and all up, um, they picked up nearly sort of 47 millimetres with that activity. And we also saw about 30 millimetres in 30 minutes at Forreston as well and the highest totals that we did see with that thunderstorm activity was generally around the Mount Lofty ranges there with good falls of sort of 20 to 30 millimetres not so much as it did move across east it was a bit more hit and miss um, with the thunderstorms through there they did persist quite late into the evening and when it came to work this early this morning they were still um, hovering around northern parts of the Riverland and the southern parts of the northeast pastoral district there but it looks like that system's really moved off to the eastern states we could still see a little bit hanging around that eastern border this afternoon with a bit of development but i really think that most of that activity has now moved to our east we've got our new high pressure ridge starting to push into the south so a return to those milder south to south easterly airstream across the south of the state and that's um, going to persist in the in the middle of the week as we um as we dry up a, a little bit, so um, all that activity seems to have settled down and we'll have a little bit of a reprieve. Could be a little bit of a foggy start about the southeast um, tomorrow morning with a little bit of low level moisture, but otherwise we're in for a, a dry day on Wednesday. On Thursday, there's a bit of a trough up in the northeast and a um, little bit of moisture hanging around with the NT border. So um, possible to see a little bit of shower or thunderstorm activity just up around that NT border on Thursday but it's really as we head towards the end of the week for Friday and Saturday with this next system that's coming across that looks a little bit interesting. So on Friday we'll we'll start to see um, things heating up as our winds turn more northerly. Could get a little bit gusty at times especially out in the west and um, ahead of that trough we will start to see potentially a little bit of shower and thunderstorm activity and we'll we'll be watching those um, storms closely because it looks like they're going to pick up a bit of a tropical infeed as they come across from the WA border there so um, we'll be watching that so could be a little bit gusty at times so we could see some um, heavier falls with some of those storms but at this stage we're thinking on Friday that risk is really out to the the west of Sejuna and looking pretty dry elsewhere across our eastern border districts on the Friday but um, got a bit of timing issues with this one on Saturday our guidance isn't quite well defined with this one it keeps changing and our sort of two preferred models have got quite different timings as this system starts to move across the the state on Saturday so it is a bit of a watch this space but by the end of Saturday we would have expected to see that system move through and showers developing pretty much throughout the state on Saturday Um, with those thunderstorms it looks like um, at this stage they will 
will be confined mostly to northern parts of the state, so really across the pastoral districts, maybe pushing into the Flinders, but high variability with this system coming across on Saturday. So we'll be watching that one closely as things come through. By Sunday, though, especially in the south, we would have settled into a, a cooler pattern with still a little bit of shower activity possible about the pastoral districts. And even on Monday, we could still be seeing a little bit of that shower activity hovering around the NT border but by Tuesday it looks like things are drying up for the state. So just having a bit of a look at some of that rainfall that we are expecting. So really even if we do see some activity today on the eastern border we're not expecting much. Wednesday is looking like a dry day um, throughout the state and then on Thursday with the activity up near the north we're not expecting uh, too much with that but as really this system on Friday and into Saturday that broadly we are looking at maybe 2 to 10 millimetres falling with this one and some locally higher falls of 10 to 20 millimetres are possible with thunderstorms and it's even the chance to see some higher totals with those storms out in the west of potentially 20 to 40 millimetres but yeah it's um, highly variable Cassie and it's a watch this space. Well, we will keep watching and keep in touch with you. Thanks for that, Jenny. Thank you. Jenny Horvat from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be mostly sunny tomorrow. There is a slight chance of a shower in the east in the afternoon and early evening. There's also the chance of a thunderstorm in the east as well at the same time, and that could get a bit severe. Winds picking up through the early afternoon. Overnight temperatures falling to between 19 to 24. Daytime temperatures reaching a pretty warm 40 degrees. The lower western will be sunny. There's also a a thunderstorm chance in the far east in the late afternoon as well. Overnight getting down to 15 to 19 degrees, but the day getting up to the mid to high 30s. Cassie Huff, it's coming up to 12.30 on the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company this afternoon. I hope you're having a great day. I have good news for South Australia's fishing industry with the training centre at Port Adelaide, the Australian Maritime and Fisheries Academy. The lease for that has been renewed. It's a boon for the industry given what it's done for the fishing industry over the years. Over the past 25 years, the figures that AMPA has is that it contributed over $55 billion to the South Australian economy. I mean, it is a really big generator of income for uh, our state, uh, including in regional uh, areas like Port Lincoln. I'll have more details on what this new 10-year lease for the Australian Maritime and Fisheries Academy entails. Also, grape growers have been doing all sorts of things to deal with the oversupply issues the industry's facing, grafting new varieties onto uh, older ones, mainly uh, grafting white varieties onto red varieties, is proving popular. And I'll have more on that soon. But first, here's Matt Coleman with the news. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is travelling to Alice Springs on the back of demands from the federal opposition to take further action against spiralling rates of crime. The latest crime statistics for Alice Springs show a 43% increase in assaults in the year to November the 30th, with large spikes in commercial break-ins and property damage. 
52,000 flyers against a northern Adelaide suburbs council's Smart Cities initiative have been anonymously handed out. The Salisbury Council is planning a public meeting about the project, which is an upgrade of technology across the suburb, including CCTV. Salisbury's Mayor Julian Aldridge says there's no indication about who the flyers were sent by, but she encourages people to learn about the project. And the World Health Organisation has named Australia as one of the countries with the highest rates of heart disease caused by trans fats. Australia is also behind in terms of regulating the harmful ingredient. The WHO says 5 billion people around the world are unprotected from trans fats and is urging governments to act. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman. There, as I was saying, the fishing industry has welcomed the renewed lease for another 10 years for the Australian Maritime and Fisheries Academy. The training centre at Port Adelaide has seen more than 12,000 500 students trained in the fishing industry in a wide range of skills. And Minister for Education, Training and Skills Blair Boyer says it was an election promise to have the lease for five years, but another five was also added. So we really wanted to give ANFA, the Australian Maritime and Fisheries Academy, some security because we know how important their their work and training is. Um, There's no one else who basically offers this training, certainly in South Australia, and the quality of the training they offer is absolutely world-class and recognised right across Australia as being industry-leading. Before the last election, the then uh, Liberal government tried to evict them from uh, the TAFE Port Adelaide site and make them go and find their own alternative accommodation at commercial rates. Now, uh, we we know that that often doesn't work, particularly for organisations like AMPA that are set up essentially by industry for industry. And, you know, this is, this is really, really important training. We need to remember, you know, remember that it's not just around stuff like uh, commanding commercial marine vessels and um, marine engineering. It's also around marine safety. You know, this training actually saves lives. But we thought it was a no-brainer to offer the extension of the lease for five years. And then we've also included over and above the commitment we made uh, for an option of another five years to give them that, that 10 years of security. You touched on it a little bit, but how important is it to have it in South Australia? Well, I mean, the fisheries industry to South Australia is enormous. Like, over the past 25 years, the figures that AMPA has is that it contributed over $55 billion to the South Australian economy. I mean, it is a really big generator of income for uh, our state, uh, including in regional uh, areas like Port Lincoln. And the number of people who go through AMPA for that training is really, you know, significant. We're talking about 600 students a year and over the last 25 years, 12,500 people have been through the facility. So uh, why would, you know, for the, for the sake of what is relatively a very small amount of basically lost revenue to the state government, put at risk a uh, industry which is worth that much to our state? It makes absolutely no sense on any level. And that's why, you know, pretty early in the piece, we've made sure that we get out there and deliver on what we promised we would do for AMFA before the state election. Minister for Education, Training and Skills, Blair Boyer. Founder of the Maritime and Fishing Academy and Chairman of the Board, Dr Hagen Steer, is over the moon with the extension of the lease because he says the training gained at the site in Port Adelaide is vital for the industry to survive. It was a momentous occasion for, for our industry. You know, we've been there for, for 25 years, but it was always on and off, and that makes it hard if you've got a big staff and people are trying to do the right thing uh, in regards to training for the seafood industry and to be able to uh, to secure other 10 years for the fishing industry or the seafood industry this is quite quite something quite quite extraordinary and uh, 
I'm thinking on behalf of industry, I'm thinking and the academy, of course, but I'm thinking the, the state uh, labor government, the Malinaskis uh, government, that what a tremendous thing they've done for the fishing industry and how important it is. We will not forget but, uh, what the government has done for us. They've done the right thing and we need the training so badly. Why was it important to keep it at Port Adelaide rather than looking for another site? Because we're right under water and there isn't anywhere else to go. You couldn't have it in Port Lincoln. We got premises in Port Lincoln. We got outreach centres. You know, we have been in Darwin and various other places. But to keep it here in Adelaide, that is, uh, that's for the southeast, it's easier to go to Adelaide. Uh, from the north, it's easier to go to Adelaide than Port Lincoln. But we've got a campus in Port Lincoln also. Uh, so we, uh, because we've got a lot of infrastructure in Adelaide already. And that's what we thought. And it's all closer to uh, people come from the east. And we get people as far away from the Solomon Islands have, uh, have been uh, come to Adelaide for training. And it's always easier. And from New Zealand, we had people coming over here. You know, we got in excess, in excess of 12,500 people on their training with the academy for 12,500 people in excess of over the last 25 years. And we started very, very small. We never thought... It's going to, uh, it will, the academy would be as big as it is today. But, uh, you know, we, we are so proud of it. And in our business, we cannot be without training. And that's what many people didn't realize. We are so happy you can't believe it. From an industry point of view, how important is it to have a specific academy looking at maritime and fisheries training? Oh, there is just no other way eh? because you can't do training. I mean, when we started the academy 25 years ago, you know, the, the type system of it, there, it was all Mickey Mouse. They had the course here and course there. They didn't have any infrastructure. We've got the, it's, it's totally different now. You know, you've got to have professional people who come out of the industry. I mean, we got people, we got Master Marin that's working for us and people uh, from all over Australia who sort of specialized in training. And for us, to have a trained workforce, we need to have training. We are the foundation of the whole industry, not only for the fishing industry, but for the maritime industry in general and for tourism and for exporting. You know, we, what we're doing is going all the way through us. Uh, and Port Lincoln, of course, Port Lincoln and Adelaide and South Australia, we have got the, uh, uh, the amount of training we, uh, we are doing. With, this last year... Over 65,000 tons came out of Port Lincoln. You wouldn't believe it. I mean, if you don't look it all up, and they're all verifiable figures, that's a lot of fish came from, uh, from Port Lincoln and from South Australia. And for that, you need training. Huh? It certainly is. I personally may be biased, but I think South Australia does have the best seafood in this country. That was founder and chairman of the Maritime and Fishing Academy. A very excited Hagen Steer there speaking with Brooke Nindorf and hopefully uh, there'll be many more successful people trained in the fishing industry to continue the uh, state's long, proud history in that industry. We're going to stay in, uh, I guess, fishing, but in a different sort of vein. Asparagopsis company CH4 has 
struck a deal with a large feedlot in southern New South Wales to supply them with seaweed to help reduce their methane emissions. Now, the red seaweed has generated interest in recent years for its potential to reduce methane emissions when fed to cattle as a supplement. Ravensworth have 40,000 head of cattle and CH4 production have production facilities here in South Australia mainly and also offices in the US, New Zealand and Australia. And uh, Adam Main, who's the general manager of the uh, company in this country, told David Corton about this deal with Ravensworth and what it will mean. It's a long-term agreement to begin that partnership. Um, we'll scale up with them uh, as the supply of seaweed grows, so um, they have quite a number of head that we will, in a very short time frame, be looking to make all um, methane impact or and methane um, reduced or reduction in. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the partnership begins in 2023, and we grow from there. And where are you growing the asparagopsis? So at the moment, we're growing asparagopsis in both Australia and New Zealand. Um, we have the ability to utilise uh, material generated from both. Um, so we've gone through all the necessary uh, process to uh, be able to use local material from Australia, but also import high-grade material as well from New Zealand to uh, to meet uh, the offtake agreements like with uh, Ravensworth. So are you farming the ocean or have you got sort of aquaculture projects running? Yeah, no, it's, it's pure aquaculture. We grow everything that we sell. So it's not a seaweed harvesting company. We're an aquaculture company. So the way that we um, grow the seaweed is both at sea and on land. Um, both of those technologies are, are still developing and um, we see that there's uh, room to gain in uh, both uh, farming in the, uh, the marine space out in the ocean, but also definitely in the land space uh, where we do that in tanks and ponds on land. So as a company, we've taken on quite an aggressive approach to scaling up this technology and we're investing in, in both options. How do you get it from your production site to the feedlot in, as far as Ravensworth goes, for example? Yeah, so the seaweed is a natural product from, from the beginning right through to the end. Um, there's not much that we have to do to the seaweed once we harvest it from either the marine or the land. We have to dry it, and you've got to dry it in a certain way, and that's something we've been doing uh, work on for the last couple of years. Once dried, we formulate it quite simply into a, a finished product. That finished finished product goes into uh, bags that goes and gets shipped off to Ravensworth. So as much as we've spent the last couple of years looking at how to scale up the technology, we've also been looking and working with partners like Ravensworth um, in regards to how is it going to be used at the by the end user, by, at the feedlot end. So we haven't gone down the path of making a technology that requires the uh, feedlotter or the farmer to change their business practices by any means. So that's been just as important as learning as much about the seaweed as we can, but also how we're actually going to get that into the trough for the cows to eat uh, a dose of it every day. And so how much will you need? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this is just dried seaweed in bags that can be mixed with the other food, yeah? Yep. So basically, a feedlot farmer um, runs a really tight process in regards to sourcing high quality materials. It's a mixed blend of all sorts of wonderful things that the cows like eating. And a cow, a normal cow in any given day would eat somewhere between 12 and 14 kilos of feed. Uh, all we need to add to that uh, mix is 50 grams. 50 grams of seaweed to a 14 kilo uh, feed for a cow a day is enough to turn the methane off. Uh, to a, to the to a level around ninety percent reduction in methane. So, what percentage of of cattle in feedlots now would be getting asparagopsis or some kind of uh, feed to reduce emissions? Do you reckon? Oh, low, low now. Yep, one percent or something. 
Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, very low in 2022. In 2023, we're absolutely starting to get into counting percentages. So without sort of, you know, overstepping, we're, we're aggressively looking at having 20,000 head um, at some point in 2023. Um, but that is then scaled up. It doesn't go up by the tens or the hundreds. It goes up by the thousands as the industry scales up. And it's people like Ravensworth, the early movers, that will get the advantages. And um, I think that Ravensworth as a mature feedlotting company are seeing that opportunity both in the domestic and the international market for the export market. So it's, um, it's a pleasure to work with those companies that are, that are keen to explore this technology right at the get-go. Adam Main from CH4 speaking about the company's deal with the Ravensworth feedlot. And speaking about seaweed, a Perth-based company, a startup there, also uses seaweed and it's caught the eye of Bill Gates. The billionaire's breakthrough energy venture is investing in Ruminate, which is a company that's working on a pharmaceutical product that also produces supplements that uh, also claim to reduce methane emissions from livestock. David Messina is the CEO of and he says the cash injection will allow the company to fast track the manufacturing process. What it enables us to do is progress our, our trials and registrations right around the world now and at the same time actually start uh, working on a pilot production plant. So prior to this injection, we would have been looking at doing those sequentially. But um, with this injection and, and the validation of uh, our technology, we're now able to progress both of those things simultaneously, which of course uh, means we'll be able to get our product to market much quicker. And how much is the Breakthrough Energy Ventures investing in the technology, David? Uh, look, they've come in as uh, they led this uh, second seed round, which was uh, we raised US $12 million. And by leading that, they were the, the single largest contributor within that funding round. And that took the total amount that we raised through our two seed rounds to, in, in Australian dollar terms, about $25 million. So it has been a, um, you know, for, for us and as a small startup, uh, a significant portion of that. Yeah, I mean, $25 million to me is a hell of a lot of money, uh, don't get me wrong. But when we're talking about Bill Gates, I mean, is that a, a kind of a drop in the ocean in terms of uh, support or a backing of a venture like this? Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, from, from that perspective, very immaterial. But what comes with that, and more importantly than, than the actual money itself, is the validation that our technology uh, is working very well. Um, obviously, they undertook extensive uh, due diligence on both the intellectual property and, and the results that we've seen to date, and also what our plans are for the next, um, next two to three years uh, and thereafter. And the way that that Breakthrough Energy look at this investment and, and our other shareholders as well is this is the first step on a, on a journey that they'll be with us right through and continue to support the group. So at the end of that journey, um, the numbers start getting uh, much more material and and they obviously continue to help us uh, and guide us through that process with, with all their experience. The other notable investor is uh, Andrew and Nicola Forrest's Harvest Road business. Uh, how much is, has Harvest Road invested in the technology, David? Look, Harvest Road um, have just come in alongside Breakthrough Energy. And again, they saw our technology and the ability to work closely with, with their agriculture business as being really important to them. 
but um, I guess a bit like breakthrough, we don't specifically disclose the uh, the amounts that um, individual groups put in. Can you give us an idea of the your plans progressing towards you know reaching production? Uh, as you said earlier, this kind of investment speeds things up a little bit. Can you give us an idea of the trials that are going on and that path that you're on to productivity? Yeah, so as I mentioned, there's a, there's a, a large number of, of animal trials which um, are, are currently going on and, and there's a number more. Uh, I think during the course of the next 12 months, we total about 12 in, in four different countries. Um, and that's part of the ongoing development with various formulations as well as commencing data for the respective registration programs, uh, which differ slightly in each jurisdiction. In parallel to that, we are building a pilot production plant, and by the second half of this year, we hope to be producing thousands of doses per day. So not millions, but certainly tens of thousands of doses per day. And within two years, our objective is to to turn that into um, millions of doses per day. David Messina, CEO of Ruminate, speaking with Belinda Varischetti. I'm Cassie Huff. It is 12 minutes to one on ABC Local Radio on digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Now moving away from uh, the seaweed to the vineyard where requests for wine grape grafting are on the rise as the industry looks for ways to survive China's trade tariffs. With an oversupply of Cabernet Sauvignon and Shiraz, growers are investing in alternate varieties like Fiano and Grenache. Winery owner Jeff Hardy tells Eliza Berlage he's having success with grafting in his Adelaide Hills and southeast vineyards. The last three years since the China problem, we, we've been um, grafting a massive amount of Shiraz and Cabernet, but mainly Shiraz, over to Tiano uh, and Nebbiolo and clones of Tempranillo and, and the Hills Gamay and the new alternative varieties. And with quite a deal of success for those that grafted a little later and when you graft into stock that's healthy, basically. And when do you expect um, some of these varieties to be producing fruit? A, a very successful grafting job means that you get a full crop in the in the year immediately after grafting, so you miss out on one vintage. A poor grafting job or, or poor conditions during the callousing process can mean you have to regraft and you might only get half a normal crop in the second year or the year after the grafting. So if you if you started this process a few years ago, you have you had any from any vintages yet, or are you expecting any this year? Oh yes, no. When we grafted Shiraz to Chardonnay, believe it or not, in in Adelaide Hills, we we had a you know sort of a, a bigger than normal crop in in one year after the grafting. It's been happening consistently over the years that you get that full crop fairly well straight away, and and hence the attractiveness of grafting. But you know if you have a poor success rate, which has happened to a number of us more recently, you can your costs can blow out just repairing the grafting job and even replanting in some situations. How are your um, markets looking like for those varieties? Do you have much demand, or are you yeah. um, getting interest in that? Well, I mean it's always dependent on the GI, the region. So there's a massive demand for for whites, and we've got quite a bit of things like. Piano and Gewurztraminer Gavir- and Arnais and Gunnarvöllinger. So that's the Adelaide Hills. And the, the reds that we're changing to, like Nero Davila, work rather well up there. And Grenache, in fact, is going rather well too. 
but it may be a limited market because it's primarily a, a, a domestic market. And the better clients of Tempranillo are, are quite attractive too. So we're finding that the new, the changed over varieties are in demand. With the triple La Nina in the last year, has that made any of the varieties that you've recently grafted a bit more difficult or any of the yeah. um, varieties you sought to graft? You know, you had to think a bit differently about that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we when we're grafting in the cooler districts, years that uh, are wet and cold, you often get bleeding and uh, in the vines tend to not callous the uh, the budwood in as easily. I mean, you seem to need four days over 25 degrees centigrade um, to generally get a good callousing of the uh, bud. Uh, and of course, the budwood has to be very healthy as well. So this year and last year, both being fairly wet and cool through spring, the later grafting in the cooler districts, even McLaren Barbarossa, I know the Riverland was, was better. And and uh, and yet this year I think with the even cooler sort of September October anyone that grafted sort of early struggling to get a good callus to join the two varieties. Winery owner Jeff Hardy, McLaren Val contractor Clint Legard has worked with Mr Hardy to switch to alternate varieties. He says demands to his business for top working or grapevine grafting have gone up fifty percent. We've been grafting for years and it's been in our family for a long time. Um, so we've done many jobs in, in the Riverland, Adelaide Hills, Barossa. Uh, we travel to Tasmania, Western Australia, so it's quite a, a broad sort of area that we travel. We get a lot of inquiries. You know, this year our numbers were way up compared to other years where people are, you know, hesitant of, you know, selling the variety they've got, so they want to uh, chop and change, so. Yeah. Any idea how much more are they, the inquiries would be up? Look, that's a hard one to put a number to, to be honest. But the inquiries would be well over 50%. What are you hearing people wanting to change from and replace with? Uh, a lot more at the moment of the alternate varieties. So we're seeing trends um, to Fiano, uh, Nero de Vola. Actually, some blocks are going back to Chardonnay, believe it or not. So, you know, we're seeing trends of that. We don't see any Cabernet going on anymore or Shiraz. Uh, we do see a little bit of clonal change. So we'll clone, we'll change the clones in Pinot varieties. Uh, we'll also change the clones in Tempranillo varieties to make them crop better. So it's not just for changing varieties, it's also for changing clones. So we can do that as well. And yeah, as I said before, you can go from red to white or white to red. It doesn't matter as far as that goes. There can be some compatibility problems between the, the host and the, and the buds going on it. Um, but it's well worth talking to your agronomist um, and also getting a virus test done prior to, to doing any grafting. Hopefully it's successful in helping the wine grape growers alleviate some of the glut that's been created by the, the lack of the Chinese market. That was McLaren Vale contractor Clint Legard ending that story from Eliza Berlage. Finally today, have you ever been tempted to swap professions? How about one that lets you travel the world and earn about $800 a day? It sounds pretty good, but it's pretty hard work. Jamestown, a South Australian local, Ben Hams, switched his job on the railway to become a shearer. And two years on, he can't see himself doing anything else. So I flew back home and was in desperate need for a job. And uh, luckily, my dad's actually a shearing contractor. So I started out in the team with him as a shearer's cook, had a rouse about leave, started doing that. And then my younger brother got to me to do a few long blows on a sheep. And I decided this was a 
interesting career change and I'd give it a shot. Uh, didn't realise that I'd shortly later fall in love with the industry. So prior to starting, was there any want or desire to get into the industry? I can't say there was. I grew up on the farm, uh, been around it most of my life, but I never really showed a hell of a lot of interest in it until I actually experienced it myself. I honestly couldn't see myself doing another job now. I guess I'll probably do this until my body's broken and beaten and then uh, I might follow in my father's footsteps and start up my own contract team. And when it comes to the skill set required for shearing, is that something that you picked up easily or did you have to do some sort of trade? So there's no trade as such. Uh, I was lucky enough to uh, have my dad and my brother supervise me a hell of a lot at the start, along with another gun teaching me a fair few things. Uh, when I realised I wanted to get better, I then went into the schools and AWI do a great job of that. I think I've done two or three schools now and that's definitely helped with my career quite a bit. And obviously the shearing industry is no stranger to labour shortages. What changes have you seen to keep the profession alive? A lot of inexperienced people sort of coming in the job, which is obviously great, but there still needs to be a lot more of them. Uh, I've seen a lot of people come out of retirement when their body probably isn't quite as capable as it used to be. My dad's a good example of that. He's nearly 60 and he's sort of just come out of retirement recently just to try and keep the shearing numbers up. But uh, things are slowly changing. The industry is slowly getting better. The accommodation provided improving. It's uh, low, but there's also the incentive of the money that they're bringing in to try and entice new people to come and join the industry and a lot more advertising going on. And what is the award rate for a shearer per sheep at the moment? I believe the actual award isn't all that much. It might be 340 or something like that, but not many contractors pay that. I'd say most people are around that $4, $4.20 mark now. So I'm probably making around that 750 to $800 a day. Do you think there is a lot of young people looking at this job and saying, yeah, I'll, I'll give that a go? Uh, sadly, probably not. I wouldn't say there's a lot of them that are interested in going to a hard labour force. But the ones that do come along, they are people that actually really want to do it. And um, we just need more of them. But, I mean, even travelling around, talking to people, a lot of people don't even know what shearing is. and um, Probably don't really see it as a career path, but it is obviously quite a good career path with good money to be made and good people to find. And what's something you've learnt about yourself doing this job? I've learned that I can work hard. That wasn't uh, something that I was used to working on the railways. I was probably one of the laziest workers going, quite honestly. I've also realised that there's a feasible way to travel and earn money at the same time. And as far as the industry goes and innovation, it said that the labour shortage has forced a lot of people in the industry to look for different ways, technology, machinery, inventions to keep it alive. Do you think that is the only way to keep the industry alive? Um, I wouldn't say that. It's definitely a good thing. Um, a lot of these things that they're working on, like the sheep tipping trailer and uh, the ram shearing trailer, because sheep are getting bigger and it definitely makes it easier on your body and it'll probably keep people in the industry for a longer period. But I wouldn't say it's a necessity. I'd say it's definitely uh, a perk and um, a good change. Yeah, and touching upon that, there is a lot of big sheep coming through. Is that a deterrent for you? Look, I mean, not... No one really enjoys shearing big sheep. It's 10 times harder on your body. You still get paid the same amount. It's um, probably a little bit of a turn. I'm lucky enough I haven't shorn too many big ones. But, um, yeah, it definitely makes your job harder. You've got a much bigger risk of injury. And then, yeah, you're probably shearing a lot less and still earning about $4 mark sort of thing. And I know you've got big plans to head overseas and shear there. Uh, what does that look like for you? Yeah, it's looking quite promising. I've been 
contacts with a contractor over in England. Hopefully all going well. I'll be over there in May for three months. And after that, I'm planning on coming back and hopefully heading across to WA. It's the one state in Australia that I haven't had the chance to explore yet. So something different again. And so basically you can have this job for 12 months a year? Yeah, so um, you can do 12 months a year in Australia if you're willing to do the travel. Uh, last year I was considering heading across to Tasmania because I do shear over that winter period. But yeah, I'm just looking to try and reach out and try something completely new again. Good to hear how positive he is about the industry. That was Shira Benhams speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. There's more online at abc.net.au slash rural. Do check it out as we approach news. It's coming up to one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.